my goal with that was just to connect with artists all over the world. And I feel like I can use my platform to document or share stories of artists as I feel like that's a gap where artists don't share enough. They don't talk enough about their work. We only get to see a finished body of work that exists on like social media or on some platform. But these conversations, I feel like, add a lot more depth to connecting with artists. That's why I started doing this. Till date, I've done a little over 90 interviews. I was just doing some research on Instagram and then I think I found one of your works that was collected by this Indian family. You're right. Yes, yes, yes. He's someone I look for, I look for inspiration from to find and discover artists. So I was very happy when I came across your work and I was like, oh, I have to reach out to Teresa and then uh, I want to find out more about her work and herself. So that's why I reached out. That's how we come. We connected. So it's an honor again to connect with you and then it's an honor to speak with you. Looking forward to a great chat. Thank Thank you. It's an honor to chat with you as well. Yeah, I love your work. I love your work. It's so refreshing. It's a breath of fresh air. I love that you love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Teresa, welcome to Jude's List. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. And you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. Um, again, it, it's a pleasure to have you on here. It's a pleasure to connect with you as well. So tell us where you're speaking from and then tell us a bit about yourself. Okay. Um... I'm speaking from Spain, from the northwest corner near Santiago de Compostela and between Santiago and the Portuguese border. So I'm very close to the coast in a really beautiful area called Rias Bajas. And that's the lower Rias. It's close to the coast and a place where uh, the coastal water spills into inlets. It's much like Fiodor's, but with no cliffs. And it's gorgeous. I live out in the country in a house that my husband and I restored 30 years ago. It's a 19th century stone house. And that's where I am. Wow, that's impressive. How did you get started with art? Wow, Uh, that's a big question. (laughs) When I was five years old, my brother, who was 16 years older than I, one of my brothers, Gave me my first canvas set of oil paints to my mother's chagrin because oil paint doesn't come out of clothing, as you know, (laughs) and an easel. And I painted a snowman. That was my first work of art. At five years. Yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) So that probably doesn't even count. I really liked art from, from the start. My brother had studied as well as psychology. He studied art at university, and he, I absolutely idolized him. And he used to take me with him when I was five, six, seven to the museum. And I really got into looking at painting. And then I started more seriously in high school. And then chose to do a degree in art studio at the University of California in Davis. Okay, so what year was this? You're going to really reveal my old age. That was in 1973. I am 68 years old. Oh, wow. Wow. So since then, you kept up and then you've still practiced as an artist. 
Yeah, well, this is the way it went. I mean, would you like to hear a bit about my uh, art education and how I got where I am now? Yes. Okay. All the details. Okay. I went to art school when all of my teachers were non-academic in their ways of imparting art class. I mean, I had some really amazing teachers like Wayne Thiebaud and uh, Roy DeForest, Cornelia Schultz. They were really, really well-established artists. DeForest, who was an, I mean, sorry, Arneson, who was an an amazing ceramicist and very well-known. But their whole whole approach to teaching art was totally non-academic. So you sort of were supposed to discover things on your own. And they had had a really academic education and were sort of rebelling against that. And this was an art school which was, um, the faculty was sort of put together uh, because there were such opposing personalities and approaches to art, which yeah. was probably great for them as a, a stimulating environment, but sort of confusing for me as a student. And I felt like I was pretty much pushed towards abstraction, uh, funk art. I I was totally unprepared in the four years I studied to really do what I wanted to do, which was work as a realist. I felt that was my language. And I don't understand why that happened at that period of time. It still happens now because writers learn how to write with capital letters and paragraphs and commas and periods and they know how to use a subject and a predicate, and then they can break all the rules they want after they know what the rules are. And I feel that art education should be the same in my personal view, that you should be prepared to speak your own language and not have to speak a language because you don't know any other. So okay. I did a third year abroad in Spain um, when I was a junior. I studied in Madrid. And I traveled a lot throughout Europe, and I got to know a lot of amazing muse- museums like the Prado. As a matter of fact, I had a class at the Prado twice a week, so my, I knew my way around the Prado like it were my, as if it were my second home. And I also worked in a print studio as an apprentice, so I learned etching and lithography from really amazing printers. And then I started doing some printing... Also, I was able to go to um, nightly figure drawing classes that were offered for free at the Circle of Fine Arts in Madrid, and I think they still are offered. So I slowly sort of wedged my way into uh, practicing realism a little bit better than I was able before. I finished my degree, and during the year I was, I I mean, I went back to uh, California and finished my degree, but the year I was in Madrid, I met a Spanish man, and I fell in love. Um, (laughs) In fact, I was sitting drawing when I saw him playing Frisbee with a friend, and a friend of mine was sitting next to me, and I said, see that guy? And she said, yeah, he was really, really good looking, really (laughs) good guy. I said, I'm going to fall in love with him. And, Just like that? Uh, yeah, I did. And he followed us into the department bar. And at the end of the evening classes, he was waiting when we got out. And he uh, invited me and my friends out. And I played hard to get and said, oh, no, I have a drawing class. And he insisted. And I said, okay. 
<laughs> and uh, I'm still married to him. Yeah. All this later. Yeah. Why do so you play hard to get? <laughs> you have to. It's you know, cat and mouse. It's a little bit <laughs> of intrigue. It adds some spice to to life. Yeah. I did return to California, finished my degree, and then went back to Madrid. And then I started going to uh, auditing art classes at the art school at the University of Madrid, which was then not part of the university, but that's neither here nor there. It, it was infamous. I mean, very famous and, and a really, really traditional academic school. And I bought anatomy books and I started drawing in front of a mirror. And I was determined to learn what I felt that I hadn't learned in, in at university. Yeah. And I started doing printmaking, uh, trading my help as a as a printer to to some a, a really well known Indian artist. Actually, sorry, he's not Indian; he's from Bangladesh. He would kill me if I said that. If he heard me say that, and I helped him print. He let me use his uh, press in exchange, and I did printing and drawing exclusively for some years. And uh, figured out how to express myself as a realist. Yeah. That's it. Then we, after two years, we, we ended up moving back to the United States. And I continued exclusively drawing. I had a, an accident when I was etching with acid. Did not burn myself, but got really frightened. And uh, so I started exclusively drawing colored pencil and graphite. And we we started living in uh, Arizona, and I established contact with galleries there and museums okay. and started showing. <laughs> okay. So let's talk more about your style and how that developed. I think from the very start, I was quite influenced by surrealists, although I'm not a surreal painter at all. I think seeing the masters also influenced me a great deal in that as you know, I love light. Light for me is tremendously important. And then I think I have a pretty wild imagination. For me now, currently, and, and I really can't tell you exactly when that, yeah. you know, that, that actually occurred. But for me, this story is the very most important thing when I'm making a painting. I used to think, as silly as this may sound, you that I could actually change the world with my work. So there was a time in my life when I did quite controversial work, and I put a lot of galleries off and a lot of collectors off. Probably I was always sticking my finger in somebody's eye. Um, I still feel a need to to speak my spirit and to speak from the heart. So. I'm still controversial at, at, at many at many times. Yeah. But this story is really important to me. If I'm not interested in what I'm painting, as my paintings take me a really long time because of the style, nobody else is going to be interested. They have to keep me fascinated for the time that I'm sitting before the canvas, which could be up to three months. Yeah. So there's that. I actually started oil painting when we moved back to Spain. Um, we had our first child in the United States. We were there for seven years. And I didn't want to raise a child in the U.S. So I instigated our return to Spain. And we've been here since then, which was 37 years ago. Yeah. I feel that the European environment is a healthier place for, and, and used to be even more so as globalization 
takes charge and the world becomes more and more the same in every single corner. But at that time, it was very, very safe. And I felt like it was an environment much more suited to raising a family. But at any rate, around 2000, I started oil painting. And as I said, because of the lack of structure in my university education, I pretty much had to teach myself how to do that. You know, I had to figure it out. Um, But at any rate, I think I sort of figured it out. (laughs) And uh, now I exclusively uh, work in oil. Okay. So when you say you figured it out, what were some of the things that you had to figure out? Like how to use the paint. You know, how to how to paint from thick to thin, how to use uh, uh, different mediums, how to mix, how to get the image onto the canvas. I yeah. mean, how to start out. Do you draw on the canvas? Do you draw on paper? Do you transfer the, the drawing? It sounds very basic, but I didn't have any of that. You know, this whole move, there, there is a resurgence of realism at this point in time. But this yeah. is really recent. Now, there's a wonderful Academy of Art in Barcelona, but it opened in 2013. That was a little late for me. And there is an important um, group called the Art Renewal Center, which is a great organization in the United States, which um, puts on really important shows and a huge international show of realism and offers classes, but that opened in 1999. So, you know, now there are all sorts of master classes for people like me who who want yeah. tools and techniques that they, they don't already have. But I didn't have any of that. So, you know, how to use oil paint and how to not s- screw it up completely and have your painting crack, you know, a couple years later. Yeah. yeah. If you were looking back in the year 2000, and then you needed to give yourself a piece of advice to get you ahead as a realist painter, what would that be? What would you say to yourself? Well, I don't think it was available for me at the time, but master classes are absolutely a shortcut and inspirational. You're around other people who speak your same language. I mean, one of the things about where I am is I am in a corner of Spain. There is an art university here. It doesn't favor um, the development of realists. It's quite centered around conceptual work. I mean, I love all art. I love everything, but what I want, the way I want to express myself is, is very specific. I was really isolated. And in 2017, I joined a group called Poets and Artists, which is a a platform located in the United States, but it has a membership of of international, mostly realist painters. At that point, we're doing a lot of arranging of shows around the world, juried shows. And one of the biggest ones they did was at the Museum of Modern Art in Barcelona, which is the biggest realist museum in Europe. And I was selected to be in that show. And then a couple of years later, I was invited as one of 80 women from around the world to show there again. And that was a time, it was electric. We met, I yeah. met all sorts of women on the same page, expressing themselves in the same way, interested in the same thing. 
And to have that sort of support that you acquire when you go to a master class and you meet people who are on your same wavelength, yeah. it's it's absolutely invigorating. And you learn tons from the master and tons from your fellow students. And I know this because I know a lot of people who, who teach them and who have been to them, but it weren't available for me then. So yeah. my advice would be, hold on, wait a few years and go to a master class. <laughs> yeah. And Teresa, who have been some of your influences? Um, you mentioned that you learned a lot from some of the old masters. So who have been some of your influences? Caravaggio's amazing first use of light. Joaquin Sorolla is an was an amazing Spanish painter who who was a master of light. Rembrandt for me is to die die for. <laughs> but yeah. maybe some of the more contemporary painters would be Perlstein, who passed away just recently. I love his treatment of the figure, in spite of the fact that he treats the figure as landscape. And I try and paint the figure as human as possible from the inside out, the outside in. I'm interested in what the figure has to say, what the figure is thinking. You know, I use the figure as a means of communicating a story, whereas Perlstein used the figure as, as though it were landscape. His paintings are gorgeous. Yeah. But his approach is completely different. I respect Georgia O'Keeffe and her story tremendously, and I love her work, you know, and that's a style which is completely different from my own. So you can see I do like other kinds of work, not just realism. Antonio Lopez is a contemporary Spanish realist who is known throughout the world. His work is absolutely perfection. Yeah. And his wife, yeah. Maria Moreno, who pa passed away recently, was equally as superb. You mentioned your love for storytelling and expressing that on the canvas. So what are sort of like the central messages or themes that you like to explore? What was the central message that you like to share in your work? Well, one of my favorite series is my tightrope series where figures are moving along a tightrope on different sorts of vehicles, a unicycle one child pushing toy baby buggy, a woman pushing a, a big baby buggy, a cyclist. The message there is about the very precarity or precarious nature that life has itself. One moment we're walking, keeping our, yeah. our balance, and at the next we can topple over and catastrophe is right there at our feet. I mean, life is that. It's we're never really sure of what's to come and we're never really secure. That was a potent series of late. My second to the last series was called Neptuna and Poseidon. And it was much more playful. I sort of let myself have a break and did something really fun and sort of did a play on the Greek god Poseidon and assigned a, his wife was not Neptune. <laughs> I gave him a new one and uh, used the fish as symbol. And there's a message there as well. I'm commenting on what appears to be so often the indifference of the gods before our human calamity. I mean, as though, you know, stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And presently, I'm doing a series, which is, you alluded to one of the paintings that was acquired by Niraj Bhatra. Uh, it's about the change in the, in the relationships between the older and the young. Uh, fathers and mothers uh, cease to father and mother, and their offspring and grandchildren start needing to father and mother them because they can no longer offer that care. Yeah, it's a cycle, you know. I'm working on my third piece in that series. Yeah, I went back to being serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what inspired you to create that series of work? Wow, I may even start crying when I talk about this. <laughs> I probably will. Just this amazing relationship I had with my parents. Yeah, watching them grow old—it's really hard. It's really hard to see them go. You know, you want them to be with you forever. And uh, I wasn't able to offer them the care I wished I could have because they lived on the other side of the world. But they were always here. Yeah. And then, you know, well, as I get older also, I realize how my relationship with my children is changing. You know, I'm, I'm no longer their caregiver at this point point in time i'm not so old that i can't offer care but the relationship has changed you know they no longer need my guidance any more than i need theirs so now there's a sort of a friendship and a mutual respect and i did age my husband a bit in the painting uh, father and son yeah. and gave my son an early task of caring for his father but that's to come. That's ahead of all of us, you know. It's always in the horizon. And I'm so grateful that I have children to have that relationship with. That's the most important thing I ever did. Yeah. In there as well, I think you highlight on the changing nature of relationships between members of the family. And I think that's important to show how brief life is, which sometimes we tend to forget as children growing into adults or as adults growing to grandparents or parents, there's, there's a cycle in which we are very not aware of until it happens. And I think that piece showed that, the, 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 the piece father and son showed that very, very well, the changing relationship. That's what drew me to the work and that's what drew me to find you as well. Because it, even in my life right now, I can feel like that's where I am and that's the relationship I have with my parents. I'm now sort of like their caregiver. I'm now sort of the one pouring back into their lives to, to, to support them emotionally, mentally, spiritually, mm -hmm. and physically, of course. It was not something I thought about, but it's something that I, I assumed was part of life. But in that piece, I guess, is it shows another part where we really have to be deliberate about how we do that, you know, because as individual members of our family, they're not going to be there forever, you know. Yeah, yeah, so it's a great reminder, I believe. Thank you. I think that the older you get, the more aware you are, um, not only because you just chronologically are closer to the end, just because you are, <laughs> but also because you see people go. You know, you start losing those who are so close to your heart and you become more and more aware that this is not forever, that this is quite temporary. 
in fact. Um, also, there's more to it than that, as unfortunately, as we grow older, we often lose part of our cognitive ability and become more like children. And this is a bit why I put some little toys in the background of yeah. this painting. Actually, the third painting I did, Grandmother and Granddaughter, um, is similar in that the granddaughter is reading her grandmother a story from a child's storybook. The one I'm working on presently is a grandfather uh, in the lap of his granddaughter, and he's clutching a doll. And the first one I did was called Motherhood, and the grandmother is reclined with a tiny little suitcase in her feet which symbolizes the fact that she is about to take her last journey and she doesn't need to fill a suitcase. You know, we just can't take anything with us. Yeah. Yeah. But in there as well, I think you also include some playfulness that the older you get, you also go back to your childlike behavior where you're playful. I think sometimes we also forget that. We take life too seriously. That's true. That's true. Um, I agree with you. And sometimes I think the only way we can, I mean, not sometimes, I said that wrong. I always have thought the only way we can survive is by being playful and by laughing. I mean, it's just a saving grace. You know, you see people in the most precarious of situations and it seems that they, luckily, they often retain the ability to laugh, which is probably the only thing that allows them to survive. Yeah. Teresa, I think you, you mentioned that one of your pieces, you made reference to, if not in one of your pieces, I think you made reference to your husband being your best friend. So what, what has your friendship or what has your relationship evolved over the years? Like, how has that also influenced your work? Yeah, certainly. He, he studied architecture. So he was actually, uh, when he was my boyfriend, the first person who really oriented me, especially in Spain, uh, encouraged me to go back to the university and audit classes and promised me that I could acquire the, the skills that I felt I was so deficient in. He was my, you know, sort of, he was stalwart. He was there. He was encouraging always and still is. As a matter of fact, um, we live on this piece of land that has two outbuildings that he reconstructed. And yeah. originally one of them was my studio. But I got kicked out of that because we had another purpose for that building. And he built yeah. me my studio from the ground up, the new one, wow. the one I'm in now. So With his own hands. With his own hands, absolutely. Every part of it, the, from the ground up, the roof, the windows, everything. You know, no, no, no pre-made windows. It's all absolutely his artisanship. That's so beautiful. that's support. And yeah. um, also, he's just, he's well-educated and a, a fabulous uh, conversationalist. So, so that's a real stimuli when you can be debating and talking I mean, people actually comment that when we're in bars that we um, habitually go to, like, you guys are always talking. We've <laughs> <laughs> been together for how long? <laughs> well, 46 years, yeah, and we're always talking. So, yeah, I think definitely is an inspiration. 
Yeah, and you still go to bars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bars, you know, you know, in Spain, bars are places where families go and yeah. have coffee. I mean, it's not exclusively, it's nothing like a bar in the, the kind Traditional of Traditional sense. Yeah, it's a, a gathering place. Okay. Okay. So what are some of the things that you like to talk about? Uh, I can tell you one we don't like to talk about. <laughs> You know, what we think about, you know, the political situation, current political situation, about our children, about the economy, about evolving religious attitudes. I don't think there's anything we don't talk about. Yeah. Teresa, in your experience, being together for that long, what sort of keeps a relationship healthy? Talking. (laughs) Talking (laughs) and forgiving. You know, you have to be forgiving and accepting. I don't think we can remake anyone and nobody, I don't, I, I think that there is no one made exactly 100% the way we might order someone. If we could, you know, say, this is exactly what I want. Perhaps if we could, it would be incredibly boring because everything would be so predictable. Yeah. I think forgiving, accepting, laughing, talking. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you can practice that daily? What are some of the ways that you've been doing that daily? My husband retired some years ago when there was a building crisis in this country. He was pre-retired. He's been around doing all sorts of constructions, inventions. He works around the land and and does all sorts of things while I'm painting. So then we stop mid-morning and we have something together, a snack and chat for about a half an hour. And at the end of the day, the same thing. And after dinner, meals always, we we always share and uh, often prepare them together. And at the end of the day, we we watch something on Netflix or Prime Video. (laughs) Yeah, you need time. Definitely it takes time. But having time to sit and chat, not watch TV, you know, that's that's important too. We have had a lot of adventures because what I did leave out of this little conversation because I didn't want to just keep talking. We went back to the U.S. because after I finished my degree, I went back to Madrid. As I said, I stayed there for two years. And then we moved back to to the U.S. where our first child was born. And the reason we went back to the U.S. is because Leonardo decided that he wanted to be a cowboy and to live on a ranch. Because we we had heard that the government was subsidizing ranches that were being subdivided. So for a year, I found him a job on a ranch. We had visited my family so he could get to know my, where I had come from and intended yeah. to go back to Spain. But he went back and I stayed on a bit longer. And then he telephoned me a day later and said, don't come back. I want to be a cowboy. Find me a job as a cowboy, please. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So I found him a job as a cowboy and we lived on a ranch for, for a year getting cowboy experience so we could own a ranch. <laughs> and then during that time, the government uh, changed the rules. We could no longer buy one. We would never have been able to afford one. They no longer subsidized, and we decided yeah. to move on to our next adventure. 
How was that experience? Oh, so living the cowboy life. I was teaching at the university. It was actually a junior college then. <laughs> it took me about 40 minutes to get there because we were 18 miles down a dirt road and then highway. I was teaching and I also had a huge garden and a goat and we rode horses and he really loved it. But I mean, it was an experience. It was an adventure. It's very hard work. And we were very, very isolated, you know, in the middle of nowhere with yeah. very few ranch families around us. And it was fun for that time. I'm very glad that we did not buy a ranch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure Leonardo also enjoyed it and loved it as yes, well. Yes, yes. He's a really good writer. And a very funny thing happened when we, you know, many years later when my son was about seven years old, I got, and we were living in Spain, I got called to school and the director told me she was very worried because my son was telling lies to his whole class. And I said, what is the lie? And she said, he told everyone his father had been a cowboy. And I said, it's, <laughs> it's not a lie. <laughs> and she flipped. <laughs> She, I think she thought I was lying too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why would she not believe that? Did she think it was so outrageous? Yeah, well, you know, in Spain, you only see cowboys, you know, yeah. riding horses. On TV. Lassos and, yeah, in Westerns. So it was pretty outlandish to her. Wow. Wow. But I'm sure that, has, that must have been a rich experience for for your family and for you as well. Yeah, uh, we didn't have children at the time, but it was, uh, you know, every, well, I don't know if I should say it this way, but, but so many experiences are enriching. You know, if you know how to squeeze the juice out of them. I mean, everything we do, everything we see, every experience we have can make us better people. Um, How so? Good ones and bad ones. I think we learn from them. We learn from hard times. We learn probably more from hard times than good times. And if we can become stronger, more sensitive, more sympathetic, then we're better. And how do we squeeze the strength out of difficult situations or hard well, situations? Probably afterwards, more than during. But there's always something to be learned. For example... Just an example. We have had a couple of very devastating economic situations in our lives where we ended up with no work and we owned a home, but we had to make house payments and we had little children and we didn't know how we were going to, I mean, when we were going to come up with a solution. Spain was in a tremendous economic crisis and finding a job right then was very, very difficult. Uh, it was really hard to go to bed every night and say, when is this going to end? And are we going to make it? Or are we going to have our house foreclosed? And what's going to happen to us? But we really grew close together because we had to depend one on the other. You know, there was nothing else. And we gave each other strength. And we kept each other's spirits up. And we found joy in very simple things because <clears throat> we couldn't afford to do anything outrageous. We could buy sunflower seeds and take long walks. And I think that at that moment, 
at that kind of a moment, you realize how superfluous so many things in your life are and how yeah. very important the people you love are. That's an example <laughs> of what I meant. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, but sometimes I think they're also a blessing in disguise. You know, sometimes difficulties come as gifts that are rubbed, are rubbed in a way that we only see the difficulty, but we don't see what comes out in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, some, if, if there are no roadblocks in our lives, I mean, we could so easily just carry on merrily without really stopping to appreciate what we have. Uh, to appreciate those who are around us. Sometimes they bring changes that offer us better better realities than the one we were living before that we came upon that roadblock. So, yeah. Yeah. In your experience, what has been the most difficult part about your art practice and then about being an artist? The most difficult? Yes. Or the most challenging. Okay. The most challenging is what I alluded to before, surviving as a realist painter in a world that was sort of hostile to new realism. Before the resurgence of realism, I think there was a big pushback. It was as though you would often be met with the attitude of that's already been done. Well, everything has already been done. You know, the world is enormous. The population is gargantuous. The number of creators is equally as gargantuous. And there is no possible way that you can be original. You know, you can coincide with someone on the other side of the world without ever having seen what they're doing and what or, or what they've done. Um, just because we are under the same influences, we live in the same world, we read the same books, we read the same stories, we see the same movies, our inspiration is similar. Historic, historical influences are, are also coincide. I don't understand that attitude of that's been done because black canvases were painted in the 1950s and hung in the MoMA by Clifford Stills, and people are still painting canvases one solid color as though it were something absolutely new and different. It's fine, but it's not new and different. It's no more new and different than new realism is. So until I discovered this sort of nest of other realists, I really felt constantly like I was fighting a battle, defending my cause as a lone soldier. And I actually stopped painting for a whole year. I was so frustrated. I had done a one-person, one-woman show in a wonderful gallery. And it was also the time of the building crisis in Spain. And I hadn't sold one painting, which had never happened to me before. And I said, I'm done. This is too hard. I give up. And I did for a whole year. What got you back on your journey? It's in me. <laughs> I really need to paint. I mean, it's a, real, it's a real necessity for me. I'm happy when I'm creating. Well, not always happy. Sometimes you're very frustrated because things don't go exactly the way you wish they would. But it's an outlet. It's a way I express things that I probably don't express in any other way. I mean, I've actually been accused of being sort of by two Swiss women who I, I met in New York. They were both studying, getting PhDs in, in, in psychology. 
And they said, but your work is dark and you're so high spirited and so gregarious and so happy. And I retorted, that's what I let you see, but that's not all there is. So creating is a real outlet for all of those parts of myself that I don't wish to share with everyone and sometimes with anyone. I mean, I have some pretty dark thoughts about what we are as human beings. I think that as humans, we can be amazing and absolutely disappointing. And those frustrations that I feel as being part of this human soup, I can reflect in my work and I think it's helpful. And also I just really like painting just on a very superficial level. I just, I like the action. I like the, I like the, the whole liturgy of making a painting. How does it feel? Oh, it's just, I love it. I love watching something come to life on this two dimensional surface. I love watching the figures grow and the, the cloth fold and the flowers burst and something that looks three-dimensional pops up and it's uh, totally invigorating, the fact that you've created this. It can always be better, but to be able to, to communicate that or try yeah. at least, and it doesn't really even matter that I'm capable of communicating the thought that I originally had in my, in my brain when I created that piece. I think it's lovely that other people can live it however they want, interpret it however they want, identify with it in any way that is helpful to them. I think that generally what I'm trying to express are universal feelings and fears and joys. And if I can express them, it can perhaps be helpful to someone who is looking and identifies with those same feelings or different ones. When you say feelings and joys, what specific feelings and joys? It depends on the painting, you know. Um, Okay. For example, I celebrate love as sort of, some of my work has a very sensual quality. And indeed, that's one of the most beautiful parts of being a human that exists, the love between man and woman, the love between woman and woman, man and man, human and human, children and adults. I mean, that, of course, is non-sensual. I I kind of went on a sidetrack there just speaking of love, but sensuality is a part of love. And I have addressed that in some of my paintings, the series I did about the human as flower receptacle. I don't know if you've seen them. No, I haven't that seen that. That series came about because my paintings often appear to be so, as I said, and have been more in the past, controversial, strange. And one of my friends once said to me, why can't you paint something something normal, like, like, <laughs> like flowers? And I said, okay. You want flowers? I'll give you flowers. And I did a series of the one is a woman and there's a rose between her breasts and she's like her head is bent back. Another is a woman who has a rose in her bottom. 
Um, another is a man who's sitting on a chair and has a beautiful lily. It's like a bouquet in their grass okay. between his legs. So she wanted flowers. She got flowers. <laughs> I was delving into the sensuality of the human human body, which I think is another gift that we've been given as humans. Yeah. What have you discovered to be true as an artist? That you have to paint what you really, really believe in, what you really feel strongly about. Because if you're not doing that, I don't think that your work rings true. Is that a good idea? Do you think it takes... (laughs) I I think it is. I think it is. But do you think it, it takes time to also have that answer? Probably. Probably. I think, you know, evolving in any any field, creative field, I think takes time. And I think that as a creator, at least I should speak for myself, but I know I went through different periods. Something happened to me at art school, which is a good, good example of what I'm trying to say. Um, I was in a watercolor figure painting class and I did this piece of the nude figure which was probably around I think in meters now one meter by 70 centimeters yeah 100 centimeters by 70 more or less and the teacher loved it and she hung it in the department hall and another I think the director of the art department told her that he thought it was the best piece that he had seen produced in the art department that year. Nothing worse could have happened to me when I was that age. That was terrible. I, I think that, you know, then I was struggling to reproduce this success. It gave me such a wonderful feeling to have done something which someone, yeah. which a deity had considered to be the best. And, and then I wanted to do it again because that feeling of being, you know, congratulated and patted on the head, it's like that could be the worst thing for a young, young creator. It, it really stifles your your development. So I think you're right. I think it takes, I mean, being old has to have some advantage. <laughs> I mean, you have to deal with the wrinkles and the aches and the pains and gray hair. And so it has to have something good about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jude, can I ask you a question? Yes. When you saw that painting that captivated you, uh, did you know that I was an old lady? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Let me surprise you. (laughs) Yeah. In in fact, just before I saw the painting, I actually thought it was painted by a man. Oh, really? You know, (laughs) I've been told some very interesting things. Yeah, about my sexual orientation and all sorts of things <laughs> from interpretations of my work, which is fine. You know, that's okay. I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. So just seeing the piece, I said, oh, this must be a very talented young man who has a very profound relationship with his dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great because what I do want to do when I paint is to be able to put myself into the model's head, you know? Okay. So, so that's a really good thing. No one has said that to me and that's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I can take that and use it positively. It's not like when I was in art school and now we'll try and do it again and again. I can take it and say thank you and that's all. (laughs) That was such a beautiful piece. So thanks for sharing. I was also going to reference earlier when you were saying that um, you were saying something about your work and it connecting with people. Sometimes it connects with people in ways that you, you don't imagine. Yeah, you I know? agree. And I think as creators, sometimes our work are just like signposts. They just point you in the direction to say, this is another possibility or this is another way. That's what I think. I agree. I think that that's one of the goals of any creator. I think writers are on the same, you know, good for me, a good writer offers me something new and that's something that I struggle with in my work. Also, it's really important to me, at least I try, to offer someone some something new, a new perspective. I don't want to duplicate someone else's grand discovery. I think, as I said before, coinciding with other creators is inevitable because we are under the same influences. But I try never to do that intentionally. In fact, when I painted the series with flowers, I had never seen anything like that. And then subsequently, I started seeing figures with flowers and butterflies and birds. And there are some lovely, beautiful pieces. However, I came to the point that I said, if I see one more butterfly, I'm going to die. (laughs) I don't want to see more. So, you know, those pieces now, to me, seem less original than at the time I conceived them. I mean, people were not, people didn't suddenly say, oh, look at Teresa Brucher's work, we're going to copy that. No, no, they coincided because we're under the same influences. But it it became, then it was no longer enticing to me. So um, I was chatting with my husband about that. You asked me before if he was ever an inspiration. Well, this day we were chatting and I said, no more flowers, no more birds, no more butterflies. I've never painted birds or butterflies, but I wasn't going to. And he said, how about fish? And I said, fish? <laughs> fish, that's a good idea. And I started, uh, I set my imagination loose and came up with the idea of using, you know, the Greek god Poseidon and his counterpart that I made up, Neptuna. Yeah. And I painted fish. And now I have started seeing fish everywhere. (laughs) Not because anyone is copying me, obviously, but because, you know, it's sort of like when you're looking for, I don't know, a navy blue suit and you look and look and look and look and you finally find the one you want. And as soon as you buy the navy blue suit, you see them everywhere. Everyone is wearing navy blue suits. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You start seeing what you open yourself to. So so I'm off fish. <laughs> so no more fish? No more fish. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I think in a sense that's I mean, a huge part of creation is that it's like a ripple effect. Like you said, once you identify with a thing, that's all you start seeing, or that's get closer to you. It's like attraction almost, you mm. know. In a sense, yeah, once, once you think of something and create it, that's all you start to identify. I used to really struggle with the idea 
of calling myself an artist. And just when I started getting comfortable, like I realized that, oh my God, that's all the people I'm surrounded by. I'm really surrounded by artists. But it was such a hard thing for me to come to terms with because what I do professionally is in finance and it's business development. So it has nothing to do with arts. I started getting comfortable with the idea that I have a passion for storytelling and my gift is in really connecting with people in such a way that I'm able to get them to open up. And I feel like that is a gift that I can develop and that is a gift that I can help connect people across the world with. And yeah. I so definitely I I'm agree. Actually, you definitely have that gift. Um, I started off feeling quite nervous, as I told you. I'm I'm very shy about talking about my work. Yeah. Um, you know, I paint. I don't talk yeah. or write. I find yes. it sometimes difficult to articulate my thoughts about it, and I'm shy about sharing. I mean, you opened up a whole can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> and because you're easy to talk to, I may have said some things I may regret. When I listen to the podcast, <laughs> but there, it's out there. It's gone. Can't take it back. Yeah, yeah. In a nutshell, I also feel like we also need to see the whole part. So the ups and downs, the highs and lows. So just to get a full picture on who Teresa is, and to also learn about her story and to connect with her in such a special way. I feel like all those elements come into play. So all that is needed. That's cool. Thank you. Yes. yes. When I told you, you know, I alluded to the show that I participated in at the Museum of Modern Art in Barcelona. And definitely it was sort of like, because all of these women were women and they were all doing this, the, the language was so similar. We cut the crap. We went right to the center of things. Mm-hmm. And we were able to talk about yeah. things that were much more transcendent than you would ever tend to talk to someone you just met about. And yeah. I came away feeling that I not only respected the work of most of these women, all of them. I mean, all of them did beautiful work. But I also had gotten to know them, you know, because we didn't have to do any introductions. So it's sort of like what you're saying. It, it gave, it was so eye opening and it was so joyful. So I guess that's what yeah. you're doing on a one-to-one. Yes. Yes. Um, and then back to you, Teresa, what has, I would say, what is your understanding of time as a creator? That it's too short, that that there's not enough yeah. of it. I mean, I'm not sure I'm interpreting your question correctly. You are, yeah. you okay. are. Okay, yeah, we're here for such a brief time. And so you said this before, Some so many people live as though there were no end, and there is. Yeah, there's so many things that I would like to accomplish and like to do other than painting that I will not have an opportunity to do because I was a lover of science and uh, like sort of a very studious sort. And I didn't mention this, but 
I also stopped uh, for a period of time and studied industrial engineering, which I did not finish. Okay. But it, it's a long story why I did that. Uh, but it all comes down to the fact that I just have a real desire to know as much as I can in as many fields as I can. I love math. I love physics. I love chemistry. I love science. And I wish I had three lives so I could do some of each. You know, time is too yeah. short. And then in that sense, how do you learn to sort of prioritize between what is important and what is urgent? Well, I think that's a lesson you also learn as you grow up. It took me a really long time to figure out, you know, but what is most urgent are the people around you. That's first and foremost. Everything comes after, even even painting. Sometimes it's really, really hard, as a woman especially, to defend my painting space because the people around me are so important to me, particularly my immediate family. And if I have an opportunity to spend time with them, I have a a grandson who's my first and he is eight months old. And my daughter and son-in-law just moved back to Spain from the United States for the very same reason that my husband and I moved back to Spain when my first child was born. And they live a half an hour from me. So being able to spend time with them is so over the top that sometimes it's hard for me to say, okay, and now this is the painting time, you know, and especially for a woman, because by nature, we tend to be the nurturers, you know, the mother so often is, I love cooking, for example. So big family meals and chatting around the table afterward. Those, those are really, really treasured moments. But being a creator also requires an enormous amount of time. So I've commented this with a lot of my painter friends who are women, and we all yeah. tend to agree that as women, you know, we take the whole burden of burden between parentheses. I mean, I don't mean like a painful burden, but but a burden yeah. of supporting and sustaining the family in a nurturing way. And it's really hard to defend that space as a creator for all of us. I think it's a shared difficulty. Yeah. How have you learned to balance that? I haven't. Over the years. <laughs> I haven't. No, no, I try really hard, but I'm really, really disciplined. <laughs> so, like, I actually know that other painters, because I, I got wind of a conversation that occurred among some really, really well-known painters in my area, making fun of me because I got up at a certain time in the morning, went into my studio to paint. And they were of the belief that you painted when you were inspired. And I'm of the belief that you must be inspired while you're painting. Because if you're not painting when you're inspired, this is actually um, something that Camilo Josefela, a very famous Spanish writer, said that inspiration must come to you while you are creating. It doesn't just, you know, hop onto your shoulder at any time. I get up in the morning and I go into the studio and I work until it's time for lunch. And then I, I often work on weekends and I work all afternoon. I'm very disciplined. But of course, if the opportunity presents itself for me to go off to the beach with my new grandson, it's a possibility that I will give in to the temptation 
it also keeps me balanced, yeah. you know. Someone who is, you know, walled up in a studio 24-7 is not going to have much to offer because everything we have to offer as creators comes from our experience. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for sharing You're that. Welcome. <laughs> <Wonder what laughs> children will yeah. think when they hear this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, on that note what's something that you would like to share with them if they're listening oh wow um be happy and try and make everyone around you as happy as you can you know that's our great task in life yeah. is trying to make uh even if it's the small space that we occupy because as i told you before i used to have these grandiose ideas that my painting could actually influence and change people i think that the best i can hope for is to influence my little bubble and leave yeah the space i've occupied a little better than it was before i occupied it you know that's the that's the most I can hope for. And I I just, you know, hope that they are happy and make other people happy because that means that and they are. They're really good people. Really good people. So Yeah. I think that was what I was going to say earlier when you said you wanted your paintings to change the world. I think that sometimes if you're able to inspire one individual or one person through your work, that creates a spark that has a ripple effect to also change multiple worlds with multiple individuals. And I think that really counts. So I'm amazed and, really that. and absolutely grateful. And I don't have enough positive words to say that I could reach out uh, to someone like you. I mean, you're in a different continent and we have connected. And this yeah. is amazing in and of itself. I will give myself many kisses for having accomplished <laughs> that with that painting. Yes. You know? And I connected with Niran. She is an absolutely charming man. Um, yes. And yeah, that's a great achievement that I am proud of and happy for and thankful for. Yes, and me as well. I'm also grateful that Dad was able to connect us in such a way. And obviously, this is the first time we are speaking and, and talking like this. So it's it's a pleasure and it's an honor to engage and learn with you. Thank you. Thank you. Know? you. Well, like you said, yeah. you're really, really a good people opener. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Yeah. I try. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're almost wrapping up. Do you have any last words for our listeners? Is there anything My else you want to words. share? No, actually, I said so much. <laughs> My last words are, um, <laughs> no, it was a pleasure to meet you. And, as I just said, to connect with you. Yeah. So, Teresa, in your own words, what's your definition for love? <sighs> it's giving everything you can that the person needs. Not what you think they need, but what they actually need. And knowing how to receive what they can give to you. I think that's it. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. I did. I, I had a lot of fun. I started out so nervous and now it's like, oh, do we really have to stop already? <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can go on. We can go on. We may we bore everyone who's listening to us except ourselves. <laughs> okay. Well, then we'll, we'll pause here and then yeah, do a part risky. two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, again, I, I enjoyed connecting with you, and this is such Thank an honor. You. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Jude. So happy to have met you. Yes, likewise. Okay. Likewise. I'll keep in touch. Please do. Okay. Okay. Pleasure. Bye. 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 Bye.